I want to ask you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn in them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, it's been a little time since we have been here, and uh, it's a great opportunity for us to return again. We are returning to our study of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the very birth of Jesus Christ as He entered into His creation for the salvation of His people. I would dare say there is nothing more amazing in all of human history, no matter what has gone on throughout the thousands of years that mankind has been walking around this planet. In all of human history, there has been no greater event than the event of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God Himself becoming man. Some time ago, in our own study of the Bible, we studied through the letter that Jude wrote to the churches. And you remember that Jude was writing with an urgency in his voice. He, he was speaking with, with a sense in his own heart and his own mind, a concern that was burdening him. No doubt it was impressed upon him by the Holy Spirit. So urgent in his own heart that in his voice he spends the entire letter that short letter of Jude exhorting those who are believers in Christ, he exhorts them to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I'm sure we remember that statement from Jude. That is a sobering statement for us as Christians. In one sense, it is a trumpet blast. It is a, a clarion call, if you will, for all who believe that we would uphold and stand upon the truth which God has once for all delivered to His people. The saints, the holy ones, the called out ones, those who know Jesus Christ by faith. Therefore, that demands that if you and I as Christians are to uphold and stand upon the truth, then therefore we better know the truth. We better know the truth. And we better know that we know the truth. Luke certainly wouldn't want it any other way. He certainly would have understood that fact. He was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. As Luke was living his life on this earth by the grace of God, he was a contemporary of Paul and all that had gone on in the life of Paul. He had been there, in fact, with Paul on occasion as he traveled on his missionary journeys. We have assurance of that as you look at the book of Acts and you read through Luke's accounts, as he oftentimes will use that plural pronoun, we including himself in what he is writing. And he certainly would have known the principle of how to guard the truth, how to ensure that the truth is passed on to other people from even the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that he was to pass it on to faithful men who would be able to teach others also in that. And so for Luke, it has never been for us simply about giving 
us historical information. While Luke is a faithful historian, he is also a faithful theologian and a faithful shepherd of the hearts of God's people. So it's never simply been about just history. Luke isn't a guy trying to become some best-selling author. He isn't writing in such a way that it would garner the thoughts of many, many people and thereby sell volumes of copies of what he has written so that he appeals to the masses that it might be appealing to more people. For Luke, it's about truth. It's about truth. Just like Jude, Luke is writing about something that would help us contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's what Luke is writing. So this is about truth. And so we are not surprised when you open to the Gospel of Luke and you even go back to the first verses in Luke's Gospel in chapter 1 and we, we hear these words from Luke. Inasmuch as it's as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught. Of course, we know Luke is specifically writing to his friend Theophilus. We don't know a whole lot about Theophilus. We talked about him at length in the beginning of our study of this gospel. But a a greater audience that Luke is writing to by the Spirit of God is all of us, all of us sitting here today, everyone who knows Jesus Christ by faith, every Christian around the globe, anyone who knows God by means of faith in Jesus Christ. This is being written to us. So he is writing to us in consecutive order, oh, excellent friends and and brothers and sisters of mine, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. This is about truth. Luke is writing with an urgency in his mind. You need to have the truth. Why? So that you can personally not be confused and so that you can personally contend and stand for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You must have the truth and you must know the truth so that that which is false can be exposed. So that you too can pass on the truth to other faithful ones who will do the same as you have done. So that you too will pass on the truth. He says to Theophilus, I want you to know the exact truth. That's the, that's the reality that we have to keep in mind that undergirds everything that Luke is writing. This is the exact truth. This isn't half-truths. This isn't partial truths. This isn't false information parading as if it's truth, like we see so much going on today. This is absolute truth. 
On Monday nights, every other Monday night, the several men get together here at the church for a men's Bible study. And very often I begin our times together by asking a question just to kind of engage us in a thought process about the Word of God. And recently when we met, I asked the men this question, how concerned is God about precision? How concerned is God about precision? In other words, does God care about precision when it comes to himself and the information that he has passed to us about himself and about the gospel of his Son. How concerned is God about precision in our own minds, and our own thinking, in our own words, and our own thought process when it comes to the description of himself and the gospel concerning his Son? Well, of course, the only right answer to that question is that God is perfectly concerned with precision. He is perfectly concerned with precision. Why? Because to be imprecise about anything that God has said is to actually, in our own hearts and minds, to alter His perfection by our imprecision. And to alter who God is by our own imprecision is no longer to have God. You must have the God who has described Himself as He has described Himself, and you must understand His words as He has given them. And so to alter perfection in any way is to no longer have perfection. To no longer have perfection is to no longer have God because God, He is perfect and He is unchanging. And perfect and unchanging is the definition of biblical truth. It is perfect and it is unchanging. Why? Because it is God's Word. Exact truth, then, is the self-expression of God. Therefore, whatever is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, being of God is exact truth. Well, this is what Luke has been giving to Theophilus and thereby to all of us. The visible self-expression of God through the outworking of His Word as we see it unfold before our very eyes. This is the Word of God. And so Luke has been giving to Theophilus and to all of us a a standard through which all of us can identify what is exact truth. This is the filter. This is the grid. this This is what God has given us. And he says, you want to know the truth? You hear something? You want to know whether it's true? Filter it through this. This is the exact truth. This is what you need to know concerning God and concerning the veracity of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ and how to live that out in a world that hates God. 
In other words, by what is written here, we can accurately know that what we have been taught about God and the coming Messiah is the exact truth. That's pretty solid ground, isn't it? That's more solid ground than any other ground anyone else offers to us by way of what they are saying. This is solid ground. And so, just like in a court of law, even in our own world, whereby the facts are corroborated through truthful witnesses, so too God in His graciousness accommodates us by giving us reliable witnesses to Jesus Christ being the Messiah. And that is what we find in our text this morning in Luke chapter 2. We find ourselves this morning in verses 21 through 40. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. And it's here that what Luke has recorded about the coming of Christ is being reliably corroborated through truth tellers in that they are truth doers. Truth tellers who are truth doers. Let me just read this section for us, and then we'll begin to draw from it what God has for us this morning. Beginning in verse 21, and I'll read down through verse 40, but as you well know, we certainly won't get through all of that. Verse 21 begins this way, And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts may up from many hearts may be revealed. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. 
She never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continuing to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And then, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and in the grace of God, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, let me just say, this is a more wonderful passage than we may realize or have realized in the past. Very often, especially when it comes to what we just came through, the holiday season, the months with which we, we typically turn our minds to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ. We rightly, in fact, focus our attention on those details surrounding the Messiah's birth. And like we did here, even in our own congregation, we talked about the angel's announcement. And the glory that was was there in that announcement to Mary and the announcement to the shepherds. We even looked at the lowly shepherds and how, how the God, by His grace, would go to those who were the outcasts, really, of Israel, those who would be seen even as the criminals of Israel as they cared for sheep out in the meadows. And that night the angels appeared to them to tell them this good news. Oftentimes at the holiday season, we will mention what was happening in the heart and mind of Joseph from Matthew's gospel as he discovered Mary's pregnancy and how he wanted to put her away secretly. Even sometimes talk about the wise men who came from the east sometime later to pay homage to Jesus. And of course, how Herod desired to have Jesus killed and had all the Two-year-olds and under males killed in order to maybe somehow have Jesus killed at the same time. It's all rather miraculous. It's all very familiar to our minds when it comes to the happenings around the Christmas story. But I wonder how often when we think about all that took place under the guise of the Christmas story, how often do we continue in our own minds with what continues after that? How often in our own minds do we return to passages like this, like we have here this morning, that continues after? We continue to hear God's giving to us faithful testimony of what took place by truth-tellers those who are telling the truth, and we know they are telling the truth because they are truth doers. Because they are obedient to what God has asked. It's interesting that in our world, the criminal system, people are found to be guilty or innocent in a court of law on the basis of information that is corroborated by credible witnesses. This is why A defense attorney will oftentimes go to great lengths to try to undermine the credibility of a witness. Why? Because credibility is what corroborates their testimony, who they are. 
Well, Luke, Luke, like a good lawyer in a law court, is giving us credible, corroborating witnesses to the incredible events that surround the incarnation of Christ. So that you and I might know that what we have been taught is the exact truth of what took place. And you notice here in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, the first witnesses are Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph. And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. The name that was given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days were of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You notice that Mary and Joseph are not mentioned in those verses by name. They're not there by name, like we hear beginning in verse 25, and then again in verse 36, the names of Simeon and Anna. But we know who Luke is talking about in verses 21 to 24 because of what they are doing. What is happening in those verses? And what are they doing? They are obeying God. They are truth doers. They are naming the child. They are having him circumcised. They are going through their own purification process. And they are presenting the child to the Lord. So what makes them credible witnesses as to the truthfulness to what Theophilus has been taught, and to all that what we have been taught, is why we can trust Mary and Joseph's testimony. Because they are truth doers. And we can tell that by how meticulous they are at keeping the commands of God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ in His own ministry with His own disciples, as He is teaching them, He says to them, if you love Me, you will what? Keep My commandments. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. This is the principle in the heart of the believer. We are those people who keep the commands of God. This is the outworking of our life. This is the testimony of our life. This is what makes our witness, in one sense, what we say with our mouths, credible to others who see us. We are truth doers. We are truth doers. So let's ponder this for a moment. Let's ponder this for a moment. Luke has written to Theophilus, and he has said that Jesus entered into the world through the womb of a virgin. Now, that is something that has never happened before. That is something that certainly in our lifetime and the history of the world, no one else has rightfully in any kind of way verifiably claimed to be born of a virgin. 
And that means that Jesus himself had no physical human father. In fact, Luke records that Jesus has been fathered by God through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. And so what is Luke testifying to? What is Luke telling Theophilus? He's telling Theophilus, he's telling us that Jesus is God's Messiah. Jesus is God's Messiah, meaning that He is God in human flesh, and that He came to save His people from their sins. If that is the exact truth, then the only conclusion that all of us can come to, and the only conclusion that Theophilus could come to in his own mind as to what he has been taught, is that this is the greatest child that has ever been born in the history of creation. And so when you come to this section, this section of Luke's gospel is being used by Luke through God's leading to prove his claim. To solidify for us in our own confidence that Jesus is God's Messiah. Irrefutable. Absolute exact truth. And we can believe his testimony. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. We've heard that. We heard that from the angel. He said that to Mary. Nothing is impossible with God, but also because God graciously accommodates our own sinful doubt through the credibility of those who were involved with the event. Mary and Joseph are the first that Luke uses as verifiable, credible witnesses. And we already know that they are righteous people. We all know these two are righteous. What does righteous mean? Righteous means, in a biblical sense, it means being right with God, being in a right standing with God, not being under the wrath of God, not having God hold our sin and the guilt of our sin against us. That being true of them is why they were rightly obeying the commands of God. They weren't obeying the commands of God in order to be righteous with God. They were obeying the commands of God because they were righteous before God. We know that Mary was in right standing with God because she says in verses 46 and 47 of chapter 1, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Mary knew God as her Savior. That's an important distinction for us to remember. That dispels a lot of falseness that is out in the world, particularly in various religions throughout the world, speaking about Mary. Mary herself is not a Savior. Mary herself cannot help you be saved in any kind of way other than listening to the testimony of Mary say, God is my Savior. Mary wasn't sinless herself. Otherwise, Mary wouldn't need a Savior if Mary was sinless. No one 
has God as Savior unless God first makes them righteous by means of forgiveness of their sin through the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, being imputed to them by means of God's Messiah coming, living, and dying as a man. No one is declared righteous without Jesus Christ. So Mary was righteous by God's declaration. But so was Joseph. So was Joseph. In fact, Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19 says, Joseph being a righteous man. That's a declaration about Joseph in his very life and character. He was a righteous man. Not, not just a, a man who would do the right thing uh, to Mary because he found out Mary was pregnant and then therefore he wasn't going to put her away because the angel spoke to him. And, and Joseph, you know, he was, a, he was an upstanding guy. He wasn't going to do the wrong thing. That's not what that means. When it says he was a righteous man, it means he was right with God. He was right with God in the same way that Mary was made right with God. It came by faith in what God had declared concerning his son. They knew what the Old Testament prophets said about Jesus Christ. In fact, they knew in their own heart the very same thing that Simeon will declare beginning in verse 29. My eyes have seen your salvation. Joseph's righteousness came by faith in what God had declared concerning his son. That's what the scriptures means when it says that Joseph was a righteous man. And just like Mary, no one gets that declaration upon them unless God makes it about them because of what God has accomplished for them through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He grants that imputed righteousness to them based upon them confessing their sin, the forgiveness that He gives them upon that repentance of sin and faith in God's Messiah, His Son. And so here is Mary and Joseph, righteous people, and we can see that righteousness being reflected in how they live. They are committed to obeying what God had commanded. You notice verse 22 and verse 24, and then again in verse 39, notice what it says, when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed. Notice verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. Verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee in their their own city of Nazareth. They were living according to the law of God. They were not living according to the law of God in order to attain righteous. They were living according to the law of God because they were righteous. They were right with God. Remember, whose word we are reading. Remember whose word this is. Remember why it has been given to us through the mouth of Luke that we might know the exact truth. This is the exact truth. This is God's declaration, and we know that God would never say about someone that they are righteous without God declaring them righteous through His Son, Jesus Christ. So when it says that Mary... And Joseph are righteous, we know it to be true. 
That is simply to say that they were living in obedience to what God commanded. Why? Because they are righteous people. They are indeed truth tellers who are truth doers. Truth tellers who are truth doers. We know they are committed to God because it shows in how they live. They're not just talking about living for God. They are living for God. Again, Jesus said to his disciples, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. The world is watching. The world is seeing. The world is analyzing. The world is looking at those who profess to know Jesus Christ, those who claim to have a relationship with God. The world is watching, and they are making a determination about the veracity and truth of it, of it by how we live. And they will know that we are the disciples of the true and living God by how we live. We might even state it this way. We are credible truth tellers by living according to the Word of God. We are credible truth tellers by how we live according to the Word of God. It is a very sad thing to hear anyone who is outside of the kingdom of God looking at another person who claims to be inside the kingdom of God and saying with a conscious choice, I don't want to follow that person's God. Look how they live. I've heard it. It's heart crushing. That's not Mary and Joseph. Verse 21 says that they had Jesus circumcised. Why? Because that's what the law required. Verse 22 says that they brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Why? Because that's what the law demanded. Verse 22 also says they did this when the days of their purification was finished. Why? Because they were following the commands of God. Why? Because they were righteous people. Their credibility is visible in their life. Then down in verse 39 it says, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned home. Why? Because, Because they followed what God said. They were truth doers. They were truth doers. I find that refreshing, don't you? I find that refreshing as a Christian. The Bible tells us in the book of James, faith without what? Faith without works is dead, worthless. That is simply to say that truly righteous people are obedient people. Mary and Joseph were following the law of God. Why? Because they were saved. Because their sins had been forgiven them. Because they were righteous in the sight of God. They were committed to the commands of God. Let's look at this a bit closer. Let's look at this a bit closer. The text says... In verses 21 to 24, when the eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, 
the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That's what the law required, verse 23. And they went and offered sacrifices, verse 24, just as the law of the Lord required. So first is obedience by Mary and Joseph to the commands of God in naming Jesus and in circumcising Jesus. And then second, their obedience is seen through their purification and their presenting of Jesus to the Lord. All of these acts of obedience prove, without a shadow of a doubt, their credibility about who their son is which tells us that Jesus is just what he has been proclaimed to be, even in the short time that we've been in Luke. Even in Luke chapter 1, chapter 2, all that we've heard so far is exactly as it is. It is true. He is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's look at this first, the circumcising and naming of Jesus. The Old Testament law prescribed that any any male child to be born within the nation of Israel to a Jewish family was to be circumcised on the eighth day. We need to go back to the book of Leviticus to see this in action. Go back to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12. Not a long chapter, just eight verses. But it is the laws that deal with the issues of birth, motherhood. The Lord is giving command to Israel through Moses, the one who is leading Israel to the promised land at the time. It says in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. And then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for thirty-three days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed." But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and shall remain in the blood of her purification for sixty-six days. When the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting one a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So this is an important passage for us to understand what is happening in Luke chapter 2, verse 21 to 24. Any time a child was born to an Israelite woman, certain ceremonial 
aspects, certain ceremonial laws needed to be followed. And if it was a male child, then that child was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Why circumcision? That's the question we have to ask. Why circumcision? Well, God had instituted circumcision with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. We're not going to go there, but you can go read about that in in verses 1 to 14 of Genesis chapter 17. And circumcision was a sign of identity for the male children in Israel, and it was a symbol uh, of God's covenant with His people. So, if you had a male child, you would have them circumcised on the eighth day, as it says here in Leviticus chapter 12. And we saw, actually, back when we were studying in chapter 1, Zacharias and Elizabeth, when they had John the Baptist, they were righteous people, and they had John circumcised according to the law, just like we read in chapter 2. But again, that doesn't answer the full question, right? Why circumcision, and more importantly, why Jesus? Why Jesus being circumcised. Well, it's stated in Genesis chapter 17, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant. I've mentioned that already, right? And Jesus needed to be physically identified with the covenant people of God. He was a Jew born into the nation of Israel. He was the Messiah. He needed to be identified in a physical sense with the people of Israel. And so they had him circumcised. But circumcision also symbolized other truths as well as just having the the sign of the covenant. It also had physical benefits, but also spiritual connections as well. One of the physical benefits was the protection from infection and disease. In ancient days, they didn't have all of the cleaning and hygiene practices that go on today. And so circumcision was part of God's gracious plan for preserving his people. They wouldn't be so easily uh, infiltrated by diseases that would be transmitted sexually or plagued by those things that were killing the nations around them. But even more than that, even more than just the physical reality, was the symbology that there needed to be spiritual cleansing, that sin needed to be cut away. It was a sign of the constant need of the cutting away of sin. The reality that sin was passed down from one generation to another through procreation. So that every time, any time a male Israelite even went to do the daily deal of of using the restroom, he would realize and be reminded of the reality of sin. And the reality that through procreation, sin was passed down from one generation to another. And no human was without sin except Jesus Christ. Except Jesus Christ. So why Jesus Christ being circumcised? 
If Jesus Christ was without sin, we, we can understand, we can comprehend the reality of Jesus Christ being identified with the people of Israel through the covenant and through the sign of the covenant, and that makes sense to us. But if it also had this idea of, of this reality of sin always needing to be a reminder that sin is passed down and no one was without sin, then why would Jesus need to have that on his own body? The answer simply is this. Jesus came to fulfill the whole law. So that in fulfillment of the law, he was circumcised on the eighth day. If Jesus had not been circumcised, even though it was a symbol of all of that, even though he was sinless, then Jesus Christ would not have come to fulfill the whole law. He would have, had to, he would have foregone part of the law and never could have said, I came to fulfill the whole law. So that's the first reality that we see. They Mary and Joseph did just as the law required. On the eighth day, they had him circumcised, even though he was sinless, even though he was without sin. That would have been interesting to grow up with Jesus as a, as a young boy. I've often thought about that in my own mind. What would it have been like to be around Jesus as a boy? You know, what would his brothers have thought of him? You know, Jesus never did anything wrong, never sinned in any way, never had a bad thought about them, never made any kind of mistakes when it came to his own humanity. He did everything. If he wanted to build a table, he didn't have to use nails. He'd just go, table, there it is. <laughs> Jesus, the leg on the table's broken. No, it's not. No human was without sin except Jesus Christ. And yet he came to fulfill the whole law. But notice the more significant thing taking place, I believe, in verse 21 of Luke chapter 2. Is the naming of Jesus. When the eight days were complete before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, that's when the naming would have happened. It wouldn't have happened the day at birth. It would have been just over a week, the day he was circumcised. They would have named him and then circumcised him. And I think it's more significant, not by way of truthfulness, but simply at least as I think about this and I think about what's going on, it's more important because Jesus' name means everything. Jesus' name is everything about him, even though most people, in fact, sadly, even a lot of Christians don't know what his name means. I wonder if we asked ourselves this morning, what does Jesus' name mean? If we would know the answer. Jesus' name means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation, or God is salvation. Why was he named Jesus? Well, surely because the angel told them to name him that. It was the command of God, and that's why they did it. They were following exactly what God had told them to do. But he was named Jesus because he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Wouldn't have meant anything if his name was Fred. The name Jesus is simply the 
original language of the Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Joshua. Yeshua. You've heard that probably at some point in your life. We all know who Joshua was. Joshua in the Old Testament was the great leader. He was the leader that that was commissioned by God to follow in the footsteps of Moses, who, because of his own disobedience, was not going to go into the promised land. And Joseph, or Joshua, was going to be that great leader of Israel who was going to lead them into the promised land. But Joshua's name was not always Joshua. You may not have known that, but Joshua's name at one time originally was Hosea. Hosea means salvation. Salvation. And Hosea was named by Moses. His name was changed by Moses. You know that because you can read it in Numbers chapter 13, verse 16. And it was changed to Joshua because of Hosea's faith in God about conquering the enemies in the land to which they had gone out as spies and come back and given a report. Joshua is the old Hosea, and Hosea became Joshua and led Israel into the promised land. So within the very name of Joshua, or Jesus in the Greek, is the idea of deliverance, this deliverer. So Jesus means then God is salvation. God is deliverance. And that deliverance is a heroic deliverance from the bondage of sin, from sin's grip. Jesus is deliverance from sin, and there is no other. So Mary and Joseph, here in Luke chapter 2, they, they have Jesus circumcised, and they name him Jesus just as the angel had told them before he was conceived in the womb, they are being meticulous to follow exactly what God has told them to do because they are righteous people. And then, and then thirdly, they obey the law of purification and then present Jesus to the Lord. Notice, and when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, verse 22, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, why, why would they do all of this? Well, because Leviticus chapter 12, because of what it says in the law of God. Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 6, when the days of her purification are complete, that is the mother for a son or for a daughter, doesn't really matter, depends on the time length that goes that is required for that, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. This was for her purification. This was for her to be brought back into the fold, if you will, to be brought back out of an unclean state and been 
then ceremonially cleaned. And the priest would offer it before the Lord, make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child. It doesn't matter if it's male or female. So besides naming him and circumcising him in order to fulfill the law of the Lord, these two other events had to take place. A mother who had a child needed to be purified in order that she might be able to worship again. And there was a significant time involved in doing that. It was a firstborn son. If it was a firstborn son, it also, you had to go one more step and you had to offer that son to the Lord. They had to be given to the Lord. And there was always a personal cost for purification. Mary and Joseph, we surely know from the text in chapter 2 that they were not people of means. And we certainly know by way of timeline that the kings from the east couldn't have come there when Jesus was born on the day he was born, as some of our nativity scenes seem to say. Because if they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they certainly wouldn't have been able to afford a lamb. Verse 8 of Leviticus 12 says, If she cannot afford a lamb, then she is to take two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And Luke chapter 2, being a fastidious historian, checking out all the facts, although we know the exact truth, tells us that they offered two pigeons or two turtle doves, not a lamb. They could not have had the means for that at the time. So they didn't have much by way of money. And so her purification, they offered two birds, Two birds, as the law stated. They offered two turtle doves, two pigeons. One of the two they brought. We're not sure. The text doesn't tell us exactly what they brought. It really doesn't matter in one sense, although pigeons are around all the time. Turtle doves were seasonal birds, only around certain times of the year. But there was always a cost. One of the birds would be offered as a burn offering, the other as a sin offering. One offered as an aroma to God for as a burn offering before God, the other as a sin offering to make atonement, or at least to show the reality of the atonement for sin. And the priest would take those sacrifices, the sin offering would make an atonement for her, and upon the completion of that, she would be ceremonially clean. And in order for the purification to be according to God's law, there were time elements that needed to be followed in order to accomplish all of that. First, Mary would not have been allowed to worship for the first seven-day period, as in the days of her impurity or menstruation. Those days, it was an unclean time. That was a, a reminder to a woman every Time she went through that, that there was an uncleanness, that there was this purification that needed to happen, much like the male who was circumcised. Every time he went through the daily rituals of life, he was reminded that sin was there, that sin needed something, that sin had to happen, that purification needed to be dealt with. And so here is Mary. She's not allowed to worship, at least in the first seven days. And after the seven-day period has gone by, she's still 
in this ceremonial uncleanness. And then on the eighth day, according to verse 21 here, and according to verse 3 in Leviticus chapter 12, right? The circumcision and the naming takes place. It's the eighth day. And then after the eighth day, she remains in the blood of her purification. If it's a male child, another 33 days. 33 days. Therefore, being unclean during those days, she wasn't to touch any consecrated thing. She wasn't to be around the temple. She wasn't to enter the court of women at the sanctuary. She wasn't to go anywhere around any of that stuff until the days of her purification were completed. So if you're doing the math, for 40 days, a Jewish woman having had the greatest event to ever take place in her life, the birth of a child. And for Mary, this is the greatest birth that she was ever going to have, the Messiah. For 40 days, she's unable to worship with the people of God. And all of that was a reminder of the fact that uncleanness separates us from God. Uncleanness separates us from God. And if she was to have a female child, you notice in Leviticus chapter 12, then that uncleanness goes for 80 days. There's been a whole lot of debate as to why a female child would cause a woman to be unclean for that long when a male child was half of that time. There's a whole lot of theological debate on that. I'm not going to get into any of that. We could speculate on a whole lot of things. But in Luke chapter 2, this is Mary, and it's her firstborn son, a male child. And so here in Luke chapter 2, at least beginning in verse 22, the days have passed, 40 days have passed since the birth of Jesus. Here's now this little child who's a month and a half old, and they present their offering to the priest. It's curious, isn't it? In verse 22, it says, and when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed. It's interesting because Leviticus chapter 12 doesn't say anything about the male purification. doesn't talk about males being purified. Circumcision was a sign and symbol of that. But Luke says their purification. Why? Why does he say it that way? Well, certainly because of this, because Joseph being married to Mary, it all would have affected Joseph as well. Mary not being able to worship with the people of God would have had an effect upon Joseph and his life, especially since they're not at home. And what Mary needed to do and what she couldn't do would have impacted Joseph. And so when they have gone through the days of purification, that's the idea, not that Joseph needed to do anything official according to law, but when all Mary's process had gone on through the law, they presented Jesus to the Lord. What does that mean? What does that mean? They went up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That simply means they, they took him to dedicate him to God. Leviticus chapter 12, part of that whole process was presenting him. They were saying, this is the Lord's child. Lord, do what you want with him. Do as you please with him. This is your child. Accomplish your will with him. Do everything that you have promised. 
And so, of course, Luke writes that as it's written in the law. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Exodus chapter 13, Numbers chapter 3 talk about that. This is Mary's firstborn son. This is the child that opened her womb. And so they are following the law, just as the Lord said. They are offering him to the Lord. And they are offering a sacrifice according to what the law said for the sin offering and the purification, cleansing, the end of all that. So Luke puts all that here. It's not just details. It's not just gee whiz information for us. Luke puts that here to corroborate the testimony about Jesus Christ through Mary and Joseph. This is who Jesus is. They were obedient to the law of God. Why? Because they were righteous people. They named him Jesus. Why? Because they had been told by God to name him Jesus. They weren't going to deviate from that. Why? Because they were righteous people. They had him circumcised because the law of God required that all male Israelites be circumcised. And Jesus came to fulfill all the law. Mary and Joseph were going to do what God had commanded to do. They followed the purification law because that is what God required to be ceremonially clean. And then they presented Jesus to God, just as the law required. They knew who he truly belonged to. This is the point that I just want us to see this morning. Truth tellers are truth doers. Truth tellers are truth doers. These are two righteous people doing what God has required of them because they love God, because God has made them righteous. Truth tellers are truth doers. The question I have this morning for some is why won't you believe that? Why will you not believe the truth. This is absolute truth. There are two other witnesses here in this text. They're located for us in the following verses, verses 25 through 38, Simeon and Anna. Some people have asked this question, why would Mary and Joseph have to go to the temple to offer Jesus to the Lord? Couldn't they just have been there and offered Jesus to the Lord in their own home? Couldn't they have done that? Surely that was done all over the place in Israel. For the firstborn, they'd offer him to the Lord. Why go to the temple? I'll just say it this way. We'll look into it next time. I think they had to. They had to go to the temple. Why? Because God had already spoken something to Simeon. God had made a promise to Simeon. We see it there in verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Mary and Joseph, certainly like many in Israel, could have just sat there and offered him to the Lord and then gone and had the purification done at the temple with the offerings that they gave, but I believe the Holy Spirit had to have him at the temple in order to fulfill what God had already said to Simeon. He needed to see the Lord's Christ. And Mary and Joseph had the Lord's Christ in their arms. 
Well, we'll look at all of that next time. Truth tellers are truth doers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the history that we have been given and the truth of it, the confirmation that it is for us. Lord, we believe these things, not because we have figured it out, but because you have opened our eyes to the truth. None of us are wise enough to figure out those things. In fact, you save those that are not wise in themselves. We're just fools. Fools who you have saved by your grace, and now we are fools for Christ. And so we preach Christ crucified. We preach about God's Messiah. We preach about your Son. We preach that there is life in Him if one would repent of their sins, believe upon Jesus Christ, they would be saved. You've promised that. And so we plead with you to open their eyes, quicken their hearts to life, cause them to believe that they might know true life. Thank you for our time this morning. Use us this day as faithful instruments in your hand. Bring us back tonight to enjoy fellowship together and the time again in your word. Thank you for being faithful to us. Help us by your spirit to continue to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.